Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Exalted at the Right Hand of God. He Ascended into Heaven. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 1st, 2014. We're now some 40 days after Easter. Next Sunday is Pentecost. This week, between those liturgical milestones, we celebrate the ascension of Jesus. Just as Jesus came down to earth in the incarnation, he now goes up to heaven in the ascension. And after Jesus goes up in the ascension, the Spirit of God will come down on the believers at Pentecost. I use quotation marks because the biblical writers might have intended it for us to understand their language of ascent and descent as metaphorical rather than literal. Matthew and John don't include the story of the ascension, nor does the Gospel of Mark, except in the spurious longer ending. Luke mentions the ascension in his Gospel, chapter 24, and in the readings for this week from Acts, chapter 1. He writes that 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight, and so he was taken from them into heaven. In addition to Luke, there are another 20 or so references scattered throughout the New Testament that allude to the Ascension. By the late 2nd century, Christians confessed the Ascension in the Apostles' Creed. We say, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. St. Augustine writes that the Feast of the Ascension was widely observed long before his time. Art and architecture also honored the Ascension. By 384, an exact place on the Mount of Olives was venerated. And in 390, a wealthy Roman woman named Poimonia financed the construction of the Chapel of the Ascension. And so, in our creeds and confessions, art and architecture, if you look at our images on the web this week, from Syrian illuminated manuscripts to Danish wall paintings, Christians have professed their belief in the Ascension. But what does it mean? The painting on our website of the Ascension by the Italian Andrea Montaigne and hundreds of others like it, begs this question. The painting contrasts heaven above and earth below, with Jesus hovering in between, surrounded by winged angels. Is that what really happened? Is that what it looked like? The Jesus Seminar rejects the Ascension as a literary fiction. Skeptics dismiss it as an embarrassing example of a pre-critical cosmology. 
and literalist interpretations make the sacred story absurd. In his book, The Big Questions in Science and Religion, the Oxford theologian and ordained Anglican priest Keith Ward captures the clash of cosmologies that we experience with the Ascension. He writes, We now know that if Jesus began ascending 2,000 years ago, he would not yet have left the Milky Way unless he attained warp speed. Our ideas today about space and time are different from those in Luke's day. For example, Paul described a three-tier universe in Philippians 2.10 when he wrote, In heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's tempting to contrast the outmoded cosmology of Luke with the updated cosmology of contemporary physics. But this isn't as easy as it seems, nor does it help much. I don't expect Luke to have known modern cosmology. He believed the best cosmology of his day. Ptolemy's geocentric view of the world, which reigned for a thousand years as the most authoritative view, until Copernicus demonstrated that it was badly wrong in 1543. Similarly, today's cosmologies will look crude 2,000 years from now, if not much sooner. I recently read an article by Freeman Dyson of Princeton about a new book by the astrophysicist Mario Livio. The book is called Brilliant Blunders from Darwin to Einstein, Colossal Mistakes Great Scientists, Colossal Mistakes by great scientists that changed our understanding of life in the universe. In other words, it's misleading to privilege any cosmology, whether ancient or modern, as a final picture of the world for all time. Today we think about space in three dimensions, latitude or length, longitude or width, and altitude or height. To these we add the fourth dimension of time. This view of the world might turn out to be rudimentary at best if string theory is correct. So-called M-theory proposes 11 dimensions. Stephen Hawking thinks that M-theory is the only candidate for a complete theory of the universe. But these are cosmological theories and not empirical conclusions. And so other prominent physicists like Richard Feynman and Roger Penrose think string theory fails as a theory of everything. The ascension was described by Luke within the context of an imperfect cosmology, which has since been supplanted by our own imperfect cosmology. I don't believe that Jesus ascended up in the sense of Montaigne's painting or Keith Ward's quotation, although it might have looked something like that. I do believe that Jesus literally exists in another dimension that is best described symbolically or metaphorically.
The philosopher Stephen Davis of Claremont University puts it this way, I do not believe that in the ascension Jesus went up, kept going until he achieved escape velocity from the earth, and then kept moving until he got to heaven, as if heaven were located somewhere in space. The ascension of Jesus was primarily a change of state rather than a change of location. Jesus changed in the ascension from being present in the realm of space and time to being present in the realm of eternity, in the transcendent heavenly realm. In the symbolic language of the early creeds, with the ascension, Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. And with Pentecost next week, the Spirit of God, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, descends like a violent wind and burning fire. Which is to say that our Christian story is deeply Trinitarian. And so our finite language about the ascension, limited by every cosmology of every age, is necessarily symbolic and metaphorical. It points to literal realities that are infinite and therefore indescribable. For books this week, I review a bestseller called The Reason I Jump, The Inner Voice of a 13-Year-Old Boy with Autism. The author, that 13-Year-Old Boy, is Naoki Higashida. The book is translated by K.A. Yoshida and David Mitchell. New York Random House, 2013, 135 pages. Naoki Higashida, born in 1992, was five years old when he was diagnosed with a form of autism that included severe speech impairment. Eventually, he learned to spell words by pointing to the letters and symbols on an alphabet grid. When he was 13, he published this book in Japan in 2007. Yoshida and Mitchell, the translators, who are married and also have an autistic son, have put the book into English. They begin the book with a short introduction. You can read this book in two hours. It follows an interview format of 58 questions that are posed to Higashida. The questions cover what you would expect in a candid discussion about autism. Huge outbursts over minor issues, impulsive speech, repeating questions, tactile sensitivity, the lack of eye contact, waving goodbye with his palm turned inward, and so on. Each response by Higashida is about a page long. The title of the book comes from question number 25. What's the reason you jump? 
With their own autistic son, the translators are not impartial observers. In fact, they draw a radical and controversial conclusion from Higashida's answers that reverses the standard understanding of autism. People with autism are not antisocial loners who lack empathy, they claim. Rather, both emotional poverty and an aversion to company are not symptoms of autism, but consequences of autism. Indeed, Higashida says exactly this in response to question number 57. He says, One of the biggest misunderstandings you have about us is your belief that our feelings aren't as subtle and complex as yours. Because how we behave can appear so childish in your eyes, you tend to assume that we are childish on the inside, too. But of course, we experience the same emotions that you do. This sounds awfully suspicious. Is this a parent's wish projection? Higashida's answers to the questions exhibit an unusual level, not just of self-awareness, but of self-analysis, including sophisticated conjectures about his autism. Is that his authentic voice, or perhaps an editorial gloss? The result of a tinkered translation, maybe? Perhaps Higashida is a savant of some sort. We're never told exactly how the questions and answered were compiled, posed, or translated. And so, as it stands, the story wants to play it both ways. In other words, despite outward appearances, my very different autistic kid is quite normal. Autism is now diagnosed as a spectrum of complications. The translators admit in their introduction that every child is different and that we should not generalize or extrapolate based upon one child's experience. But that's exactly what they and Higashida do. And that will be a real temptation for parents of autistic children who can be forgiven for wanting to make sense of the mysterious given their controversial conclusion that frames the questions and answers, that autistic kids experience the same emotional lives as normal people, and their emotional detachment is our fault rather than their fault. But even these critical questions can raise awareness and empathy about an important issue. And so I still say the book is worth reading. Once again, the author, Naoki Higashida, the title of the book, a New York Times bestseller, The Reason I Jump, The Inner Voice of a 13-Year-Old Boy with Autism. For movies this week, we go to South America in the country of Chile. The name of the film, Gloria. 
Gloria enjoys a good life in Santiago. She has an upscale job, a nice apartment with a housekeeper, and adult kids who enjoy her company. She's been amicably divorced for 13 years. But in her mid-fifties, creeping questions about love and loneliness nag at her. She doesn't exactly need a boyfriend, but she sure would like one. She meets Rodolfo at a disco, and although a sort of love blossoms, any new beginning at their age must grapple with the past. We all have our histories, and no one starts with a blank slate. She meets a second nameless man at a second disco with a worse result. Reality bites hard for Gloria, <clears throat> but in the end, she recovers her equilibrium. Or so we hope. Paulina Garcia won Best Actress at the Berlin Film Festival for her portrayal of Gloria. The film was also Chile's official submission to the Oscars 2014 for Best Foreign Language Film. The film is in Spanish with English subtitles. Once again, Gloria from Chile. For poetry this week, we've posted another poem by Denise Levertov, who lived from 1923 to 1997. The poem is called The Beginning of Wisdom. You have brought me so far. I know so much. Names, verbs, images. My mind overflows a drawer that can't close. Unscathed among the tortured, ignorant parchment uninscribed, light strokes only where a scribe tried out a pen. I am so small, a speck of dust moving across the huge world. The world, a speck of dust in the universe. Are you holding the universe? You hold on to my smallness. How do you grasp it? How does it not slip away? I know so little. You have brought me so far. Denise, <coughs> Denise Levertov, The Beginning of Wisdom. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 1st, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.